So this is week number one in our study of the book of Daniel. And as I said, we're going to do some historical background. We've been uh, two years in the book of John. And so now we step into a different time period, a different perspective. Um, You know, God will not speak directly in this passage of scripture or throughout the whole book as we heard Jesus speaking the words and we were able um, to take those for the words of God. But he will speak through his prophets. Um, He will speak through angels. There will be visions in which God causes to happen in people's minds, both believers and unbelievers, so that the truth might be dispensed. And that's what we'll recognize as we go through Daniel is that there is a lot of truth and a lot of foreshadowing, and a lot of um, this is why these things have happened, and this is what is going to happen in the future. Very detailed, um, very relevant um, uh, uh, picture just before the scriptures went silent of what was yet to come. And we'll, we'll struggle in several different ways that some of the things that are predicted in Daniel um, happen in at least part as we go through history and we'll look at some of those things, but usually the things that are written in Daniel have a fuller meaning that maybe have been fulfilled, and we'll see some of those, but maybe some that have not yet been fulfilled. And so you have to parse those things out and understand what Daniel's really writing, and you have to be very detailed in what you look at, because if you're not, then you'll misinterpret what is being spoken in the prophecies of Daniel. And there are lots of people who have different perspectives than I will present as we go through this book. I just want you to know that up front. Um, that um, there, are, And I'll bring some of those up. I won't just pass over and not mention those, but we'll actually look at why I think some of those uh, are, are not true. We'll talk about some of that even this morning, that people have different perspectives on who the author of this book was, when it was written, what is it really about, uh, very, very different from what I will present. And so um, I'll take the scriptures as they come to mean what they say, as opposed to meaning something else in a deeper hidden meaning, but understanding that this is prophecy and that there are, um, there are things that happen in history that seem to fulfill some of these prophecies that maybe that's not what he, Daniel was writing about. And so we'll talk about some of those, okay? So um, Because there are people who have different perspectives than what I will present this morning. Now, <laughs> just so happens, right? This is the way the Spirit of the Lord works, that Drew was in a lot of what we'll talk about today in his sermon. Um, we'll be actually a little... Um, after him, he was talking about Hezekiah. We'll be talking um, about um, the time of Daniel, which is about a oh, hundred years after Hezekiah, something like that. Um, there are actually, um, you have Hezekiah, who was a good king. Then you have, uh, this is over the kingdom of Judah. Then you have Manasseh, who was a very bad king and ruled for better than 50 years. And then you have Josiah, who was a good king again, turned the people's hearts back to the Lord. And then you have in rapid succession four really bad kings right at the very end of the kingdom of Judah. So um, we'll be um, a little before and a little after where Drew was talking about today. But what he said about the Assyrians and their their mass domination of the region 
um, and the time of their height is very relevant to what we'll talk about today. So we'll, we'll, that'll come in to some of what we've been talking about. So let's go all the way back to the patriarch David. And give me a time frame in your mind when David was ruling, when he was active, when he was the king of um, the nation of Israel. What's, what's your general thought about that time frame? When is that? 700 B.C. or so. Go a little for, before 700 B.C. Around 1,000, okay? That's a good, nice round number. It's not exactly 1,000. He was a little bit before 1,000 and a little bit after 1,000. But David was the second king, right, over the nation of Israel. You remember that Saul was the first one. Um, before that, uh, Israel did not have a king, but they saw all the nations around them, as Drew was describing today, that had kings, and so they wanted to be like everybody else and have a king. God said that's not a good idea, but he granted it to them that they would have a king. And so uh, Saul was the first one. David was the second one. The third one was Solomon, right? Now, what's the most significant thing um, that happened during the reign of Solomon in the nation of Israel? All right, the temple was constructed, right? David saved up all the riches to be able to build the temple. David, by supernatural revelation from God, got the temple design. I mean, the scriptures are very clear in that, that First uh, Chronicles chapter 28, that God gave David the revelation of what the temple was to look like. So it wasn't just arbitrary. It wasn't abstract. It was very exact, very precise. And Solomon did exactly what David charged him to do, which was build this glorious temple to the Lord. Okay? So that's what happened during Solomon's reign. What happened after Solomon's reign to the nation of Israel? All right, it was split, right? Time frame for that is about 931 um, B.C. Okay, now why did the nation split? Always a good question, right? Yeah, there, there were several men who wanted prestige for themselves who were in the northern kingdom or what would become the northern kingdom who did not want to submit to those who were in the southern kingdom because the city of Jerusalem is where? In the southern kingdom, right? All right, now there are 12 tribes out of Judah or out of um, Israel, right? All right, 10 of those would side with the north and become their own nation, really, that nation will retain the name of Israel. Okay, so when you talk about Israel in the Old Testament, until you get much later, you're talking about the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom would take on the name of Judah. of Judah. And Jerusalem is in Judah. Now, there's a, there's a tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, which is lo- was located just to the north of Jerusalem. And so they were kind of half in the northern kingdom, half in the southern kingdom. But you'll notice that when the scriptures talk about the southern kingdom, they do not include Benjamin. They talk only about Judah. Okay, because apparently most of those people, when the Assyrians came in, and you could see that in Drew's map today, that would have encompassed the land that would have been given to Benjamin. The Assyrians actually took control of that. Okay, now, um, that being said, there's a 12th tribe that had no properties, right? All the land was divided among 11 tribes. And so the 12th tribe who had no property 
are the Levites, the tribe that would be the priests. And so they had no common property. Theirs was what was brought to the temple. That's where they got their livelihood. That's what they ate. So during the northern and southern kingdoms, where are the Levites? Because the northern kingdom now, you have to understand, they didn't want to go to Jerusalem, which was in Judah, right? They were totally opposed to that. So they set up their own system of worship with sacrifices and all of that in the northern kingdom so they wouldn't have to go to the southern kingdom. So where are the Levites at? They're in the southern kingdom. They're in the temple that Solomon built because that's where they have been since the time of Solomon. Okay, and so when the nations split, you then have Israel and you have Judah, the Levites stayed where they were, which was in Jerusalem at the temple. So while they're never mentioned, you won't find them mentioned um, as you go through this historical discussion. You just understand that the Levites had no property. That's why they're not mentioned, because we're talking about geography most of the time. And they're in Jerusalem at the temple. Doesn't mean they were all faithful. Doesn't mean they were good guys and the guys to the north were bad guys. What we'll see, or what you should understand, is that almost every king, if not every king, in the northern kingdom were evil kings. It always says that they did not um, do the things that, um, in, yeah, they, they chased evil instead of good. Okay, now in the southern kingdom, the kingdom where the temple is, where the Levites are, where there's worship, you have good and you have bad. As I said, you know, we'll be talking today, or you heard Drew talking about um, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. He, um, during the time of Hezekiah, he greatly expanded, as you heard this morning, the city of Jerusalem. Solomon had expanded it when he built the temple. He expanded the walls to surround the temple that was built. Hezekiah pushed those walls out significantly, more than doubled the, um, the area that was in Jerusalem and built new walls. And so those are the walls that we're talking about when the Assyrians tried to come against them and later when the Babylonians tried to come against them. The, that's that city that we're talking about, the one that Solomon built. Okay, so you, you get kind of an idea. Now, I want us to understand what happens to both of these kingdoms, both the northern and the southern kingdom, because it's significant in the history of the Jews to have a perspective of what's going on. Okay, so I want us, we're going to be, um, Drew is in Chronicles, we're going to be in Second Kings. Okay, now, you understand that Chronicles is a summary of what's written in the Kings, right? Matter of fact, if you go way back, way back, there were not first and second Chronicles or first and second Kings. There was book one, two, three, and four in the scriptures. But when the um, when the Vulgate got written, and then when later when the Septuagint was written, they they divided those books into really arbitrary. Um, breaks now there is a, a significant break between the chronicles and the kings because the kings detail the kings right and chronicles details the history but between first and second there really were no breaks and so those were somewhat arbitrary but nevertheless it helps us to be able to find things right so we'll use those divisions and we'll go to second kings 
chapter 17. Okay, and this is the time um, that we heard this morning when the Assyrians have risen to dominance. Okay, they as had it in their hearts to take over the whole world. They never did that, but they did have significant influence and significant lands that they conquered. So in 2 Kings chapter 17, and I'm just going to do this a good bit today. I'm just going to read passages of history. And then, so if you want to say something, jump in there. I'll say some things as we go through these. But for me, the best way to understand the, the history of Israel is to read what the scriptures say about it. Okay, because that's what we really want to grasp this morning. Okay, so in 2 Kings chapter 17, we'll just start in verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned nine years. So this guy Hoshea is king of what? Of the northern kingdom. Okay, he's the king over the, ten, over the ten tribes. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, not only only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he wasn't as bad, but he's still pretty bad. Shalemazar, the king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. So he basically conquered him. And so now you have the northern kingdom being subservient to the Assyrians. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. All right, so what happened here? Assyria comes in, and Hoshea begins to pay them a tribute, right? Basically, I'll pay you money if you don't destroy us. All right, but Hoshea, when it says he had conspiracy, what does it mean? He was trying to partner with Egypt. He was trying to partner with Egypt. Why? Against the Assyrians. Absolutely. Against the Assyrians. Now, you have to understand that before the Assyrians, Egypt would have been a very powerful nation, right? All the pharaohs and all their ancestry, and for much longer, actually, than the Assyrians dominated it would have been the pharaohs in Egypt who could have come and done whatever they wanted to anytime they wanted to because they had the stronger armies. Okay, so so Hoshea decides, I'm not going to pay these guys any more money. I'm going to go and pay hopefully less money to the Egyptians and they will protect me. Okay, and so that's what's going on here. And then you, you continue um, to read in the ninth and verse 6, well, I read that, right? No. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hanah and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Okay, so they, they not only do they come in and they conquer the northern kingdom, they take all the people away from the northern kingdom. And we're talking about almost all the people. They take them all out of the land because keep reading the next section of scripture, seven um, down through about 17 or so, give all of the reasons why 
God allowed this to happen or caused it to happen. And it's because of the evil that they did. So in verses 7 through 17 or so, you have all the evil um, listed that the northern kingdom was participating in. But then in verse 18, you see that, so the Lord was very angry with Israel, meaning the northern kingdom, and removed them from his sight. None was left except for the tribe of Judah, southern kingdom. So God was angry against the northern kingdom and caused this to happen. And so basically the northern kingdom goes away. You read on down in verse 21 and you see when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through his servants and prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Okay, now... This is always questionable, right, of who wrote these books. And actually, when it comes to First and Second Kings, probably the best understanding is we don't have a name of who wrote them. We don't know exactly who wrote them, but it's clear that they were written later after all the action of kings happened, right? Else they couldn't write it all. But when you, you get to Chronicles, which details the same thing that is detailed in the Kings, a little bit more actually than what's detailed in the Kings. My best understanding of um, of who wrote those would be a, a hundred years after the time of Daniel. Okay, so those were written much later. Um, probably, if you look at the the events that happen. Um, in the Chronicles, the last event that happens happened in about 5.30 or so. Um, and so that's after the period that we're going to be talking about. Daniel is uh, around 600 and a little bit after that. So um, when, you, when you think about these scriptures and who wrote them, probably the best author for the Chronicles would be Ezra, who came... Um, In your mind, you have Daniel who is there. And contemporaries of Daniel would be both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Okay, Ezekiel, a little bit younger than Daniel, wrote, um, began and ended in the time frame in which Daniel writes. Jeremiah, a little older than Daniel, but not much, began writing before the fall of Judah and into the fall of Judah and then stopped and then, and Dan, so they over, he overlaps with Daniel. Ahaz is much, sorry, um, um, Ezra is much later. With what you have is that um, after Daniel comes a man named Zerubbabel, right? Didn't write anything, but rebuilt the temple, reinstituted temple worship, and then, and, and probably was there for 75 years. And then after Zerubbabel, you have Ezra and then Nehemiah and Malachi. And then you have silence. So that's kind of the way that the scriptures lay out. So this is what we're reading when it says that um, up until this day, we're probably talking about 100 years after the uh, time of Daniel. Maybe not quite that long, but something like that. 
right now, I ask you a question. Since that time, okay, and we're talking about 500 or so B.C., has there been a return of the Jews to this land that we're talking about? A mass return of the Jewish people to that land? Not to that land. They returned with Nehemiah to Jerusalem where he rebuilt the walls, right? So, yes, there was definitely a a coming back to Judah, but to the northern kingdoms, not so much. Not that we have in scripture, not that we have in history where this was mass return. There's a reason for that because if you... um, I thought I had it here. I guess uh, 21 through 25. Actually, what, I don't have it detailed. What Assyria did, not only did they take all of the, um, the Hebrews and take them to other lands and put them in the cities that we saw, they actually brought other people and placed them into the land of the northern kingdom. And so they, they, they swapped nations, they swapped people, and so there was no place to go back to because the people that they, the Assyrians brought in inhabited your cities. And so you couldn't just move back, even if you wanted to, but the people didn't want to because these people never were true believers and they just mixed with the Assyrians and fit right into their culture. And they were slaves to the Assyrians for a while. Okay, so basically the northern kingdom ceases to exist at this point. It lasted a grand and glorious like 215 years because it it, um, was created when Solomon's kingdom was split, 931 or so. And here we are only 210 or 15 years later, somewhere around 710 to 20, and all of a sudden the kingdom doesn't even exist anymore. So there's 10 tribes, really 11, 10, of the nation of Israel that are gone for good. Okay, now it's possible that some of those came back to Judah later. And so you maybe have more than just two tribes when you get to the time of Christ. But we have no details of that. And so the northern kingdom, I mean, just think about the severity of that. They all come out of the, out of the kingdom of Egypt, right? And there are only a couple of true believers, right? All the other people died in the desert, never entered the rest of God because they were not true believers. And then you get here um, 300 years later, more than that, 700 years later, and again, you've got this massive Jewish population where most of them are not true believers. Most of them are carried off by Assyria. And so devastation to the nation of Israel is no longer in existence at this point. It's totally wiped out and captured. Okay, and as you heard, by the brutal Assyrians. So it's not like a lot of them didn't lose their lives during these sieges and these battles. And like he Drew detailed it very well. What they would do is surround your city until you were starving to death or didn't have any water left. And it, here it says it took three years for that to happen. They just sat and waited because they could get supplies all day long. You know, the other countrymen would bring them supplies, but here you are starving to death. And so obviously, ultimately, their strategy would, would win. And so that's the northern kingdom. That's what happens to them 
southern kingdom still intact. About the time the Assyrians come in is when Hezekiah um, comes in to uh, be the king of Jerusalem, good king, restores uh, temple worship, expands the city, does a lot of very, very good things. His heart was turned toward the Lord. And so he's a very good king. And as you saw this morning, because of that, God protected the kingdom. And Judah never fell to the Assyrians. Okay? So now we kind of fast forward a little bit. Is that clear? You understand what's going on? Not too difficult, right? Well, the Assyrians ultimately are conquered, defeated, however you want to think about it, by the Babylonians. And as you saw this morning, um, the capital Nineveh of the Assyrians and the capital of the Babylonians, which would be Babylon, are not very far apart. And so these guys have been warring for hundreds of years. And it so happened that the Babylonians got the upper hand on the Assyrians. Okay, so then we begin to read about the southern kingdom. So, um, and like I said, you have Hezekiah, who is a good king. You have Manasseh, who comes after Hezekiah, who is a very evil king. Matter of fact, um, I don't know if we'll actually see it. The reason the southern kingdom falls is because of the sins of Manasseh. Even though after Manasseh, you have Josiah, who is a very good king. Uh, Manasseh had hidden the book of the law because he didn't want to follow the book of the law. Josiah finds it about middle way in his reign, reinstitutes the Passover, reinstitutes the temple worship. Um, And so he's a very good king and turns the hearts of the people towards the Lord. And so even though that's true, still the kingdom fell because of the sins of Manasseh. All right, so we, we get down and let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 23 now. So we're a good bit later. We're about um, close to 100 years after the northern kingdom um, fell. And so you've had Hezekiah, you've gone through Manasseh. You've actually, we'll pick it up where Josiah was. And so we'll begin reading. I, I debated about this, but let's go all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 28. And so we're going to read a good bit of this. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the answer to that obviously is yes. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates and King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. So here you have a good king in Israel who's turned the hearts of the people toward the Lord that God allows the Pharaoh of Egypt to take his life. Okay? And again, we'll see why all this happened. His servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land took Joseph Joazaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. Jehoaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months, all of three months, in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did evil in the sight 
of the Lord according to all his fathers had done. So here you have the son of a very righteous king who comes into power when he's 23 years old and does the exact opposite of his dad. Okay, he was an evil king, and that's why he only reigned three months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim the son of Josiah, king in place of Josiah's father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Okay, so what happens here? Who's in control of what is happening in Judah as far as the leadership is concerned? Pharaoh Nico is, right? I mean, he first kills the king. The people decide, well, we'll make this son of the king to be our new king. And Nico says, not so much. Comes in and imprisons him after only three months and takes a different son of Josiah and makes him king and changes his name. Okay, so that's what's going on here. So it's clear that um, Pharaoh Nico is in control of Judah, right? All right, and he imposed fine uh, taxes on them and they paid him money to come in and be brutal to them. Okay, so that's what's going on at this time in the scriptures. Now, let's, let's keep reading this a little bit further. Where did I leave off at? Halfway through 34. Halfway through 34. Yeah, but he took Jehoaz, this is the king he deposed, away and brought him to Egypt, and there he died. Okay, so, so Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land, each according to his valuation, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So things are okay. Judah, um, you still have um, the Assyrians who have begun to descend, pretty much have descended, you have the Babylonians who have come to power, but still pretty far away from um, Judah. And now you have the Egyptians who, because the Assyrians are gone, can now influence the land of Judah again. They couldn't when the Assyrians were there because the Assyrians pushed them back into Egypt. All right, but here you have them uh, taking money, and basically Judah is... Uh, um, um, slaves or, or all their money is going to Pharaoh. There, and, and this king is just a vassal king. He's just doing the will of Pharaoh. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Zebedah and the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now, that's a question of you. Why is it that Josiah was such a good king and yet both of his sons who became king did evil in the sight of God? Why would that be? I mean, they had seen what their father did. They saw the the kingdom expanded. They saw um, the kingdom protected from the Assyrians even and you know, so nothing bad happened to Judah. Why would they do 
evil in the sight of God. Your goodness and your faithfulness does not determine the goodness and faithfulness of your children. Because it is only God who changes hearts. And you can do everything that's right and, and raise your children in, in the, quote, right way. But they can still turn out to be pagan unbelievers who follow after their own heart. Maybe God's heart in their hearts. Is that just a little discouraging? There's also a thing about relationships. Sure. King had relationships, any kind of relationship with your sons. Right. You didn't anything with them. Um, you know, uh, you don't have a relationship. It usually means rebellion. You know, you were opposed against it. But you also have all of those who are under the king, who are tutoring him. Sure, sure. And some of those people are not really necessarily. May not be the outstanding people. Right. Right. Go ahead. Is there any explanation why it took 11 years? He got to reign 11 years, and his brother only got to reign three. His brother only reigned three months. Right, they were three months. They were both evil. Yeah. It took him longer to expose his evil. It took his enemies longer to capture him. It's basically what it comes down to. Wasn't Nico pulling all the strings? At this point, yes. It's getting ready to change. So wasn't their behavior relative to what Nico was doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and they could have not remained in their kingship if Nico had not supported them. Nico could have at any time removed anybody he wanted to. Okay. And so, you know, this is the perspective I want you to happen. The reason I want to go through this history is because Daniel is set at one of the bleakest times in the history of the Jews. I mean, it is desperate at the time in which Daniel comes on the scene. And we'll see that very soon here. But that's why I want to go through the history. I mean, the northern kingdom is gone. Ten of the tribes no longer exist. And now the southern kingdom is in trouble. They have uh, vassal kings who are the puppets of uh, Pharaoh. They're doing evil in the sight of God. And it's not like when the king did evil that all the people underneath him did not. Okay, because they did. And we'll see that in detail here. So that's why I want to go through this because Daniel comes on the scene at one of the, I mean, desperate times in the history of the Jews. Go ahead. Could, could it be that um, during the reign of Josiah there was so much success and, uh, and good times in the land of uh, Judah, I guess is what we're talking about here. Judah, right. That uh, one of the things I found is people who don't feel like they need a God. Yeah, yeah, and that's true of us also. If you, if you haven't, when you're not struggling, then God's not so needed, right? But when you're really struggling, then you cry out to Him. And we all know that's true in people's lives. Good. Josiah was king. Was uh, were they still um, dependent on Egypt as their ally? As an ally, yes. Was I mean, certainly. The but they over? no, they weren't paying tribute and all of that to him. It's like Hezekiah who trusted the Lord, so did Josiah. He took advantage of Josiah's death. <laughs> he killed him. He killed Josiah, right? In at Megiddo. That was Nico who killed Josiah so that he could take them over. But Josiah, uh, he didn't go, he didn't trust in the Lord. Not to the degree of Hezekiah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Right. He hid himself right. 
uh, when he uh, against the Egyptians. That's right. In such a way as to disguise himself. And, and you never against what the Lord wanted, and and he was told not to do what he did. Right. He did it anyway, and then he was shot with an arrow right between the breastplates. <laughs> Just coincidentally, right? Exactly. Uh, And you never know. It may have been the sons of Josiah who were working with Nico to get their dad killed and then ultimately take power. You just don't know. We don't have those details. But any of that is possible. Go ahead, Andy. The other thing, David, is that if you look at the the people, religion is is really at an all-time disgusting high. I mean, 2 Kings 17. Yeah were literally taking their babies and, throw, and throwing them into fires. Right. I mean, religion across the board has gotten to just a disgusting level. And, and we also know from 2 Timothy 4 that we will heap up for ourselves leaders that tell us what we want to hear. Right. And, and all that is part of this unfolding curse that God is... It is. And, and Manasseh especially made the children walk through fire. That was part of their sin. Sacrifices, right. child sacrifices, and he brought up all the astral poles and all those things right. that created the evil, perpetuated the evil to the people. And ultimately, that is why God destroys them, is for the sins of Manasseh. Good. So, God, so, okay, Pharaoh Necho's calling the shots. Right. Right. I am. <laughs> Maybe. God had something to say about oh, this ab- in the fourth year of Jehoiada. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead. I was just going to say, back to what your original question with, does it not bother us about Josiah's children turned out bad? I think there's a there's an error and a trap that we can fall into as parents, thinking that if we do everything right, then our children ought to turn out well. Right. And then if they don't, then somehow that's a failure of the parent. And I don't think we need to be so quick to say that. Because, I mean, if you look over at John... Uh, what we were just out of, he said in in one thirteen, he said, "Who were born not of the blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." It is only God that can save our children. And yep. so we, we are called to be faithful as parents. And you know, was Josiah faithful as a parent? We don't really know because the scripture doesn't record. That's right. He could have been absolutely faithful, and his children still turned out rebellious, or he could have been a terrible parent. Mm-hmm. But just like there are terrible parents that their children turn out to be completely righteous, it's not. It's not up to us. It's not. And, and, and that's why, I mean, some of you have been in this church a long time. This doesn't bother you. Some of you have not been here so long that typically you will not see us baptize a, a, a child probably under the age of 17 or so because we wait. You know, and I've had many parents come to me, is my child saved or not saved? I said, wait, just wait, be patient and wait and see. And there will be fruit of righteousness and there will be relationship and, and you, it will be obvious that they are true believers. And by the way, if your child does truly believe and they're not baptized, they're not going to go to hell. They're going to go to heaven anyway. And so wait until they can give testimony of what God has done until there's assurance of salvation, until there's evidence in their life of a, of a mature person as opposed to an immature person. Wait. And so that's why we do wait and that you don't see, like if you went to the baptismal service last week, you don't see young children being baptized because they need to be able to articulate their faith and to give assurance to you and to themselves by their testimony of true faith. 
And so uh, all of that's to say that, that that is not, you cannot accomplish that in the life of your child. You're desperately dependent upon God to do that. And so you ought to cry out to him and ask him to do that if you haven't. Because you can't get them across. Only he can, as Chris said. And so that's your, that's your focus. Your, your testimony, absolutely. You call them to the Lord, absolutely. You discipline them when they're against the things of God, absolutely. But ultimately, it's God's will, not yours. Not the will of any man, that passage he just read in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 13. It's not the will of men, no matter how much they want to get someone into the kingdom of God. It's, a poor, it's totally controlled by the will of God. And so that needs to be our perspective and that needs to be our cry in our prayers to the Lord. That's why I asked the question, by the way. Right? Always an ulterior motive. If God is sovereign, then you have to believe that. It's not your will. Do you believe God is sovereign? Every single one of you would say yes. Every single one of um, who's a true believer would say yes. The question comes, when it comes to practicality in your life, and the things, the events that happen in your life and things like we're talking about, then is God sovereign or is he not? And many, many at that point back off because they want to make things happen. And God couldn't do that and wouldn't do that, but he will and he does. He is sovereign in not just some things, but in everything. We'll see that right here. Keep reading. With, go ahead, Jerry. <coughs> Why did this happen after the example of a righteous father? Right. Speaks to the sovereignty of God that needs life to the whole truth of Romans at nine. Absolutely. They did evil because they were predestined before time began by God to do that, that he might be glorified in his You know, and that gets it gets very difficult to say that people are predestined that way, right? The only way we can receive that is by faith. That's right. But, you know, clearly, and he's referring to the passage in uh, Romans 9. But, you know, there is where um, actually our teacher, the Apostle Paul, says, I can't answer this. And he appeals to God. He says he made some uh, vessels out of the same lump of clay, some for righteousness and some for common use. And those for common use are the ones who don't believe. Those for righteousness are the ones who do believe out of the same lump of clay. He is sovereign and can do whatever he desires to. And does. Yeah. Well, we'll see right here as we go forward that God causes this to happen. Look in chapter 24. We'll keep reading. In his days, meaning in the days of Jehoiakim, in his days Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years Then he turned and rebelled against him. What happens here? I mean, Jehoiakim is giving um, monies to the Pharaoh. And then he decides, I'm not going to do that because here's this new guy who's coming on the scene, right? Babylon is rising, has conquered the Assyrians, (laughs) is conquering many peoples, and they come and threaten Jehoiakim. So he then begins to pay them the extortion instead of Pharaoh Necho. He does it for three years and then it says he rebelled against who? Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you're Jehoiakim, what are you thinking? I've been paying these taxes to Pharaoh. 
I've now, for the last three years, been paying them to Jeho- I mean, to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm tired of doing that to Nebuchadnezzar. Who's going to protect you from Nebuchadnezzar? Egyptians. <laughs> if you start paying money to the Egyptians, won't they protect you? Absolutely. That's what he's thinking. He's saying, okay, I'm going to turn back to the Egyptians. I like them better than I like the Babylonians, and they'll come and protect me. The only problem with that is they don't. So that's what he does. He turns back to the Egyptians, but look down in um, verse 7. You can go all the way to 7. The king of Egypt did not come out of his land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. All that property that was the Assyrians that the Egyptians began to flood back into, the Babylonians pushed them out of all of that back across the brook of Egypt, which is what is today probably the Suez Canal, right? And... And so why didn't the Pharaoh come against Nebuchadnezzar to protect Judah? Because he's already been beat. Jehoiakim miscalculated. Absolutely. So Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who's now risen to power. Assyria is now basically gone. They've been conquered by Babylon. Babylon comes to Judah and they exact taxes for three years and then Jehoiakim doesn't like it, so he turns back to Pharaoh, and verse 6 is what happens to Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jeho- Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. He got killed. Yeah, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. Now, now, Jehoiachin doesn't last very long. Jehoiachin was a whole whopping 18 years old. I'm in verse 8. When he became king, and he reigned for how long? Three more months, and his mother's name, right? He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. So here you've got three rapid succession evil kings. Two of the sons of Jehoshiah, and now you have this Jehoiachin um, who is evil also. And then you keep reading, at that time, verse 10, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up against Jerusalem, and the city became under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while, it was, while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. Okay, so you were asking about the years. It just takes a little while for these things to play out. Okay, and then you keep going. Now look at this, what happens. Yes. Three months and eight years. Yeah, yeah. why did you say three months? Well, it's eight years of, of king of Babylon's reign. Three months of... Right, you're, you're switching back and forth different people when they're talking about how long they reigned and that kind of... I don't think I don't know if this is his eighth year. Well, actually, as we go through Daniel, we'll be able to detail that. So, so the other thing is Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin. Yeah, rain, three months. They got up there pretty quickly. Uh, oh yeah. Yes. To move. Well, they were already under siege, and actually, you have to recognize, and it's not spelled out here, 
that there are actually three sieges of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And each time he takes more people and more possessions. So there's one at the beginning, then there's one a few years later, then there's one several years later. And each time he does that, he's taking stuff. And we'll see that when we get over to Chronicles. Chronicles kind of summarizes it. But just keep reading with me because this is devastation if you're a Jew. Verse 13. Am I in verse 13? He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord. So you're not going to do any more worship. And the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. When did God say that? He said it through his prophets, mainly through Jeremiah. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people in the land. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile to Babylon, also the king's mother and the king's wives and his officials and the leading men of of the land. He led into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile. So he's just taking everything. He takes all the treasures of the house of God. He takes all the possessions of the people. He takes the people themselves, all the ones that you would want to take, all the poor people and all of that. He just leaves there, doesn't worry about them, And so this is devastation to the southern kingdom, right? This is absolutely desperate times. All the people who were significant, just think about if someone invaded the U.S. and all the leadership, all of them, were taken away. We'd all clap, right? (laughs) No, I mean, just think of it. There would be this huge void and nothing would get done, just as it doesn't when they're in power. So it would be even worse, right? And so that's what happens. He takes all the significant people with him. But if you read it, he took, we would all be gone too because he didn't just take the right. significant. He took every, none remained except the poorest people of the land. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. You still got Judah, right? So, and if you're important, you live inside the walls. If you're not so important, you live outside the walls. And so all those people he left. So there are still Jews there just not very many, and not very many that are important. Okay, so he, he takes all these people away and um, and devastates, really, um, all of Jerusalem, all of Judah. Judah is now in desperate times. And so I want to turn over, and, and if, you, if you look, Chronicles is like a summary of what happens in the kings. The kings are very detailed. Chronicles covers more time, more history, and is kind of a summary of it, written a couple hundred years later by Ezra. All right, so turn over to Second Chronicles, the last chapter, verse 36. Chapter 36. And this will sound very familiar, but there's a particular reason why I want to read this. Beginning in verse 9. 
Second Chronicles 36, verse 9. Jehoiachin was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ten years old. Eight years old. Eighteen. Actually, mine says eight. Teen, right? At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord and made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made him swear allegiance by God but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again, again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked his messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Who is that? That's Nebuchadnezzar. The people, the land, are the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar rules over them. This is Nebuchadnezzar coming up against them. Then he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his land, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. They then, then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had, had escaped from Babylon, from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were the servants to him and his sons and to the rule of the king, kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the desolation of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were completed. All right, now here we got a lot of detail, right? That all the people are destroyed. The city is burned. What about the Temple of Solomon? What's the result of the Temple of Solomon at this time? Destroyed. Gone, burned with fire. Okay? How about all the people? Taken away, right? To be what? Slaves to him. Now, verse 20, right? Verse 20, where it says, Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king of Persia. That's Daniel. Daniel is one of those guys. Daniel's about 12 years old, 13, 14, something like that, very young. They don't kill Daniel. He's one of the ones who escaped the swords of the Babylonians. He got carried into captivity to be a servant of the king and his sons, of Nebuchadnezzar 
and his sons. That's Daniel. How do I know that? How do I know Daniel is one of those guys? Because I do. He is. How do I know that? Look at the opening verses of Daniel, right? Look at the opening verses of Daniel. And you'll see it. That's exactly what Daniel starts with. If I could find Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of the Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and brought his vessels brought the vessels into his, the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered in Ashpenaz, the king of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, use and wisdom with no defect. That's Daniel. That's, he's one of those guys. He's good-looking. He's young. He has no blemishes. He's healthy. He's strong. And he's also a nobleman. He's not just a nobody in the city of Jerusalem. He's a somebody. His family is prominent. And then Daniel is taken into captivity, and by the favor of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he's brought in to be trained and taught the way of the Chaldeans. Nebuchadnezzar, right, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, Daniel is one of those guys over in Second Chronicles 36.20 who escaped the sword by the will of God. He's one of those. There aren't many, but there's some. And, and now, let me ask you a question. Why is it that Israel was destroyed, and then you have Judah, and Judah becomes really a vassal state, a first Nico, and then of the Babylonians, and they are able to put their, their uh, kings in and take taxes from them and ultimately destroy them? Why does all that happen? Is this just bad men exerting their force and being able to do what they want to do? It's the depravity of the people. But there's clearly depravity here, but why does this happen to the nation of the Jews? They're disobedient. They disobeyed what God told them to do when they were at Mount Nebo and when Joshua were told to go and take those lands and not to worship those idols and not to mix with those people, but they disobeyed. What Jeremiah prophesied, it was prophesied by Jeremiah, was that if you don't turn, then this is what will happen to you. Okay? So that's what Jeremiah prophesied. Look over in, um, well, we'll get there, maybe. Jeremiah? It's because nobody listened to him. And you. All right, realize this. Jeremiah was before Daniel. He's, he's 30 years older than Daniel. So when, where was Jeremiah giving all his prophecy and all his turn to God and quit doing evil in the sight of God? Where was that happening at? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Where does Daniel live? In Jerusalem. So Daniel heard Zechariah predicting all of this that he then saw unfold in front of him. Sorry, Jeremiah. Daniel heard Jeremiah say all of this stuff that he actually saw happen. And so 
he knows that Jeremiah is the servant of God and has heard from God. And at some point, either got them later in Babylon or possibly took with him some of the writings of Jeremiah. The scroll probably got them later. He, he had to have, and we'll see that in a second. Not only does God allow Nebuchadnezzar to come in and Nico to come in and do all the havoc that they, that they do, he gives them the power to do so and orders them to do so. And they're doing the will of God when they come in and they take Judah. It's not just happenstance. It's not just because these were evil guys and, and Judah was weak. This is the will of God and the plan of God for the chosen people. He causes it to happen, not just allows it to happen. These men are doing the will of God. Now, I'm looking for it desperately because I have that passage selected out for you. That's where it's at. 2 Kings 24.3. Thank you. Because I skipped over it, if you noticed earlier. I skipped over it. There's always a, re- there's always a reason in my madness. 2 Kings 24 verse 3. And you'll notice. And this is where Babylon comes in and takes Jerusalem for the first time. Verse 2 Kings 24.3 Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood which he shed. We're talking about the children now. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not forgive. So this didn't just happen because there were evil guys around. There's always evil guys around. This is God ordering the evil people to come up and destroy his chosen people. This is by the will of God. This is orchestrated by God. And this is, what does this show you about God and his creation? He can use good people. He can use bad people to do exactly what he desires to do, and he does. And he does. And that's what's going on here. He is using evil kings who he, all the kingdoms, all the kings are established by whom? By God. We'll talk about that probably next week. But these kings, these kings are not just by happenstance. All those who are in authority, the scripture would say, are appointed by God. They're put into power by God to accomplish what he desires to happen. It could be judgment against bad people. It could be judgment against his people. It could be um, to have good in the land. Whatever he desires. And so this judgment against first the nation, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and now the southern kingdom is by the ordained will of God. Northern kingdom never to come back. Southern kingdom absolutely obliterated. Jerusalem, all the walls are torn down. Usually that means the gates are torn down. The city is burned. The temple is destroyed. And the people are taken off into captivity. They're all in Babylon. Goes on for how long? 70 years, years, as you just saw predicted. 70 years. Until the Sabbaths of 70 years are fulfilled. And so for 70 years... The Jerusalem is desolate. 
Nobody there. And who's alive during this time? Daniel. Daniel's the guy. This is, this is desperate times for Jerusalem. I want you to recognize that because as we go through and Daniel does what he does in the book and as he has his prayers, it's all against this backdrop of absolute devastation, destruction. He saw it with his own eyes. He was a young, he was a young boy, but he heard it and then he saw it. And so all of that's in Daniel's mind. And as we go through this book, that's his perspective. That's what we need. It's the perspective of the guy who wrote the book. Daniel's young enough to where he's never experienced a good king, correct? No. No, Daniel has never seen a good king in Judah. Nebuchadnezzar is not all bad all the time. He's bad and good and bad and good off and on. Okay, ultimately, Daniel lives not only through the whole time that Babylon was in control. He was born before lives through all the Babylonian kingdom. Then ultimately the Medo-Persians come up and destroy Babylon and Daniel's prominent in their courts and in their house. Of course, Daniel knows that too. Oh, yeah. He knows what's going on with the writing on the wall. And the... You know, there are... I don't want to jump ahead. No, we won't. <laughs> I'll just tell you that there are um, really seven passages in Daniel that are this mystical dreams, visions being interpreted. Two of them are by Nebuchadnezzar. Then you have the handwriting on the wall. This is hand appears and begins to write, right? Daniel interprets that. Then Daniel himself has three visions, and we'll go through all of those in great detail. But the one that you all want to hear about, right, is not a vision of Daniel or of Nebuchadnezzar, It is a prophecy by the angel Gabriel given to Daniel. It's not a vision. And it's the one we always, the 70, you know, the 70 weeks and all of that. That's a prophecy by Gabriel. It is not a vision. It's not a dream. It's not any of that. It's a prophecy by Gabriel who was sent to answer the prayers of Daniel in chapter 9 of the book. And he does. He lays it all out and then tells Daniel to seal it up. And don't tell anybody about it. And so that's what happens. We'll go through all of that in very detailed fashion and try and figure out what it all means, right? Not that we'll be successful at all points, I don't think. But that's, that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to try and do. So I wanted to give you the backdrop. Now, how do we know this book was written by Daniel? Because there's debate about that. You understand that, right? There's debate. Was, was Daniel a literal figure? Did he actually exist? And by the way, did the book get written in, um, I believe, think about this. The Babylonians take Jerusalem in 605 B.C. They're in captivity for 70 years. So you're now down to like, 535. And then if you look down at chapter 10 of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, the very first verse, it'll say in the third year of Darius, right? Well, Darius is the Medo-Persian king. What's it say? Cyrus, right? There it says Cyrus. Well, same thing. Yeah, we could debate that for a long time. Darius is like um, 
Caesar. It's a proper name. It's not the name of a person. And then Cyrus is the name of the person. Okay? So it's like you had people who came to power in Rome and you called them Caesar even though they weren't Caesar, right? And they changed their name. That's kind of what, for the Medo-Persians, that's what Darius, I'm telling you what I believe. That's what Darius means and Cyrus is his name. Okay, now we could debate that a long time and we will when we get there. But you'll notice in the third year, so at least this has happened. They were taken into captivity in 605. They were there 70 years and now they're not any longer in captivity at least for a year or so. So this book, probably the best date for it, is somewhere around 535. Something like that. Okay, so that's when this book was written. It's written at the end of Daniel's life, even though it encompasses all of Daniel's life. Daniel lived to be 80, 85 years old. I mean, he was not a young guy when he wrote this book. Because if he what, just think about it. He's writing about events that have already happened. So he has to be in his aged state, right? So he's 80, 85 years old when he writes this book. Something like that. And how do you know it's Daniel who's actually writing this book? Well, the, the book says it itself, right? I mean, yeah, you could look up at the beginning. You can look all through the book. And bunches of times, especially when he has his dreams, he'll say, and I, Daniel. And it's many times through the book. So Daniel, the book itself claims that Daniel is its author. And then you're right. The last thing we'll look at is over in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said that Daniel wrote this book. Right? Matthew 24. Just look at verse 15. And this is, uh, you know, we'll have to come to this passage some, even though uh, you cringe when I say that, because this is a difficult passage to say the very least. Matthew twenty four fifteen. Therefore, this is Jesus standing beside the temple, telling them, the, giving his view of eschatology. Okay, this is the Lord himself giving the most detailed view we have of eschatology that he gave. And it says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then he says, head for the hills, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, where's that in the book of Daniel? Turn over to Daniel chapter 9. This is too much for me to cover here. So we'll just take a bunch of weeks and do it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 17. I'm about to let you go. 9.17. Where this is somewhat obscure here, but it's here. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Desolate. The abomination of desolation. But turn over. It's more clear in chapter 11 and verse 31. And this is what Daniel does. He writes parts in different places. 1131, 
forces from him will arise, talking about, could be the Antichrist, who are we talking about here, but it's the Antichrist. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. So this is the time when the temple is desecrated and the sacrifices no longer continue. One last time over in chapter 12, you'll see it again. In chapter 12, in verse 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, we get to talk about that in excruciating detail later (laughs) when we get to the end of the book. Okay, and the reason, what's my purpose? Why are we studying Daniel? First of all, because it's a wonderful book and we'll learn much from the pages of Daniel itself, but also it will give us perspective and understanding as we ultimately move into the book of Revelation. And so that's where I'm headed. It'll be, I'm I'm just going to warn you, fair warning, a year and a half to two years before we get to the pages of Revelation. It will take a while to go through, and we're going to go through every verse of Daniel, verse by verse. And that will set our perspective and give us understanding when we get over to Revelation. I did it the opposite last time, and I learned my lesson. So we're going to go through Daniel verse by verse. And there's some stuff in here that's not eschatology, right? Especially at the beginning. It's not. And so, But that's good. There are being lessons in there for us. So that's what we're going to do for the next, until the Lord comes, or we, five or six years. That's where we're headed. It took me four years in Revelation last time, okay? I'll just warn you. It took me four years in Revelation, 210 lessons. So I know it's not going to be any shorter than that. And before that, we've got to go through Daniel. So we're talking five or six years. So the Lord could come. We probably will, we probably will not be in this room. <laughs> if we are, we're going to be desperate. <laughs> so so um, that's kind of where we're headed. And I wanted to give you that historical background so that our minds will be in sync with what Daniel's thinking. We need to have the perspective of Daniel to understand what he writes, what he prays, and what he sees. Questions? Comments? There's a lot of stuff I didn't give you that I wanted to give you that we'll talk about later. Go ahead. Um, on the, you know, when, when the temple's burned and, and the walls of Jerusalem are torn down and everything's burned, right. that's what starts the 70 years, right? Um, I mean, it's debatable about when did the 70 years start. I think the 70 years start when the first group is taken to Babylon. So so Daniel was in Babylon probably for 10, 15 years before the temple was burned. Maybe not quite that long, but for several years, yes. Yeah, maybe not quite that long. Um, But yes, several years he was there before. Because he went out in the first group when they took all the noblemen and all of that and didn't kill a whole lot of people. Yes. Yes. And so um, I think he was there, one of the first ones there. Okay, and so maybe some of the stuff that happens in the opening chapters of Daniel actually happens before Jerusalem is destroyed. Don't know, because he doesn't say. But yes, he's, there are three waves that go to Babylon. He's in, I think he's in the first wave. This makes the most sense to me. And you notice in the first wave, they didn't slaughter a bunch of people. In the third wave, they slaughtered a bunch of people because they were still a vassal state 
in the first wave, and even in the second wave, and the third wave, not so much. They said, we've had enough of this. Go ahead, Andy. I think one of the things, when you look at this in Revelation, is fascinating. You see in Daniel, you see this world of wickedness, and you see this, this people of Israel, when Paul says, we better pay attention because they're an example for us, right. who are religious in some ways that look very God-honoring and ways that are very wicked. So you have this huge religious people, uh, and then you have this uh, very tiny little remnant of God's true believers. And one of the things that's beautiful through both of those books is the way God just keeps them and just preserves them and just magnifies His glory in revealing that they were His all along. And there was nothing. The Syrians, Nebuchadnezzar, or anything else that will tear them away from their Lord. You know, and we saw that even in John, right? The, the vast majority of those people did not believe. They we're unbelievers, but there's always a few. And that's the remnant you're talking about. And that's always been true for the Jews. It's true today for the Jews. There are some true believing Jewish people. And at the end of the age, most of the Jews will be killed. It's not glorious and protection for all of the Jews. Most of them will be killed. Matter of fact, the prophecies are that two out of three will be killed. And so there, at the, even at the end time, there are not many believing Jews. But all those who still exist, all of them do believe. We'll talk about all of that, right? We get to walk through all of this and see, is that what the scriptures say or not? I'm going to say one last thing, Okay. What I just looked at in Matthew 24 may seem somewhat insignificant. Well, I'm going to talk about this at the opening of next week. But if you believe differently about what Jesus said about Daniel, then he was talking about literal Daniel and about the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about. It will absolutely change all of your eschatology. And I'll talk, we'll talk about that at the opening next week. Why is that true? Because it does. It sets what you believe about what Jesus just said about Daniel and what he wrote and what the future events were will absolutely change your perspective about all your eschatology. You'll be forced into one direction or the other. And I'll tell you next week which direction I am. Yeah, one of the things that uh, struck me as we were reading 2 Kings 24, very, very sobering, uh, when you read about Manasseh, Just a second. according to all that he had done, and he also, uh, because of the innocent blood that he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord did not pardon. Right. Yeah, will not pardon. Yeah, as we heard this... John David say this morning. Yeah, there, there are sobering things here. God pronounces judgment and it's final. Thanks for your time.